All right. Welcome back to Formate Arbitration. No intro music again. <laughs> I've been so busy, Matt. I ain't had time to get that intro music uh, yet, but I will. Uh, like I said, Cole called me just a while ago. He was on his way home. He had a function he had to go to, so I wasn't going to bother him right then getting this changed over, but uh, I will get it changed over. I promise you <laughs> I'll have some intro music. Not that, you know, not that intro music is that important. It just feels weird just coming straight in here and start talking. But but uh, anyway, welcome back to From 8 Arbitration. You know, I've said that in every episode, I think. Every episode, I've started out with welcome back to From 8 Arbitration. I don't know where I picked that up from, but I just realized that every every single one. But anyway, uh, a lot to do today. I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to get into a lot, but here I am getting into a lot. I'm going to touch on uh, an article that was written this past week, uh, something from the Postal Record, and then a cease and desist argument that was raised by the B team, uh, how they're going to try to defend not granting a cease and desist. Then I'll read an arbitrator's decision about the, the language that that cowardly ass language we've agreed to that we've let management punk us into this uh, abide by or refrain from an arbitrator dresses that down and uh, i'll read that to you and then i'll read an art an arbitration that shows the devastation of the cease and desist and in my arbitrations where i've come from in the 140 arbitrations i've done that shows the devastation of a, of a cease and desist and that's the reason management has bunked us out of the cease and desist because it is devastating to them. And unfortunately, the cowardly leadership that we have and continue to have that allows this bunked out language of please refrain, uh, must comply, this arbitrator's decision, I'm going to read, dresses it down perfectly and talks about it. And so uh, hopefully with a new regime, we'll get out of it. Well, not hopefully, we will get out of that uh, this completely chicken shit language of must comply refrain from uh, because it has no business in our decisions and uh, we'll go to arbitration as many times as it takes to get it back and it's going to be an uphill climb because management has kicked us in the ass on this and uh, continues to kick us in the ass and um, I'm sick and tired of hearing about Compliance, non-compliance. So many people talking about, what do we do with compliance? How do we make management comply? The union is y'all's worst enemy. The NALC is y'all's worst enemy. Management's going to do whatever they can to get away with things. They're going to do whatever they can to get away with uh, not putting in a cease and desist. And unfortunately, we've been over and, take, and took it from them as far as this language. And um, it's arbitrary's decision I'm going to talk about. Well, it's, you know, I told her, uh, you know, we will never go backwards, you know, because management came in and said, hey, look, give us a fresh start uh, on this. You know, we're doing our best. And uh, and I read it where I told her. I said, no, we will not go backwards ever. Unfortunately, the leaders of this union chose differently, and we went way backwards because we we completely did away with the cease and desist, man. And uh, I'm going to show you the sheer devastation of cease and desist. And like I said, when we talk about non-compliance, that's the only thing we have is the cease and desist. And uh, hopefully get enough of those to where we can start, you know, chipping away on some money 
and uh, that will get management's attention eventually. Um, but you want to deal with noncompliance, you start issuing cease and desist, you start getting that language in these agreements, and whether it be arbitration, pre-arb, whatever, and get away from being such cowards. The NALC is cowardly. We have cowardly leadership that has led us here. And so we've got an uphill climb to get this back and uh, to, to hopefully get back into compliance. And um, so anyway, um, an article came out this past week from Politico. I don't know if you've read it. Look it up and read it. This is the young lady that reached out to me, and we spent a couple of hours on the phone. I helped her out as much as I could. Uh, it is scorched earth on the Postal Service, this Politico article. And uh, she sent me an email. She attached that that article and uh, told me thank you for my help. And um, But, you know, it, it's uh, one of those things when I told you about the president saying, you know, it looks like there's some discrepancies. She's going full scorched earth on the, on the Postal Service for falsifying this uh, hip training. Uh, she went scorched earth. And here's my president crawling in on his belly. You know, it looks like some discrepancies. Cowardly as fuck. Uh, it made me sick to my stomach to see my president crawling in like that, you know, almost hesitant. To, it looks like there was some discrepancy. Good God, man. Get a set and, and fucking fight. Fight for us. My God, I'm sick of talking about this. We've talked about this months and months and months now. And uh, it just, reading it, it just enraged me again. <laughs> you know, she told me what he said, that he was like, you know, it looks like some discrepancy. She was upset, you know, at him for the cowardly way he was, expressed that to me. And I just said, hey, that's, you know, that's who we have. We have a coward right now. And that's what I told her. I said, we have a coward as a president. And so, you know, until we can get a new president, this is what we got. Somebody who's going to back up to the postmaster general and say, you know, scratch my back and please don't hurt me. And um, this is this is where we're at. And so, but the article is unbelievable. It is unbelievable. She went, like I said, she went full scorched earth uh, on the Postal Service for falsifying that hip training and talks about Mr. Gates. And um, it was a fantastic, fantastic article. And so if you've not read it, Get it and read it. I may try to see if Jeremy can put that up on formatearbitration.com and um, get on there and read this thing, man. She did a fantastic job, and I thanked her. I thanked her. I said, I, and uh, on the email when I, you know, sent a reply, I said, thank you. Thank you for taking up the calls of my brothers and sisters and uh, getting that out there for the, for the public because that's where we have to fight our fights, right, as the public. We have to get in the streets, and it's dirty, and it's ugly, and it's funky, and that's just where I love it. I want to be in the motherfucking streets, man, getting fucking muddy and bloody and, and shit, and, and that's uh, unfortunately not where our union leadership is at. But when something like this happens, you got to get in the fucking streets, man. And uh, and uh, unfortunately, we did not. But she did. She did it for us, and it is a fantastically, beautifully written article. It's in Politico, okay? So y'all get it and read it. Also, you know, browsing through the postal records, you know, I like to read the postal records because I'm silly like that. I love to read arbitration decisions because something's wrong with me. 
And uh, I love reading, period. I read books. I read everything that I can. I just, I love to read. But reading through the postal record, come across the March uh, 2023 postal record about Article 25. Uh, there are some problems with that, National. <laughs> There's some problems with your Article 25 thing on the postal record. Let's get in there and fix that, okay? We've got some issues. It's not right. And so uh, get in there and fix that. And uh, let's do better about getting that stuff out to our people. Make sure that the stuff is accurate, okay? Because it's not. And let's do some kind of redaction or whatever we have to do on that March 2023 uh, postal record concerning the Article 25, all right? So let's get in there. Let's do a good job. I know y'all listen to me. So get whoever's involved to get in there and correct that, okay? And let's, let's quit doing that. Let's quit putting out faulty shit. <laughs> I understand y'all are getting ready for your private Christmas party up there, but damn it, you know, let's take care of our people first, all right? And so anyway, I'm going to read this uh, cease and desist thing to you, and then I'm going to do this emergency placement. I am going to do that, read that decision to you, let you listen to my closing argument, and then uh, I'll read the decision again and let you see where the arbitrator, what he hung his hat on. And uh, JB did that, and I'll talk about it more here in a second. But um, anyway, there's this person sent me this, and it's a B-team decision how management is trying to persuade uh, the arbitrator against a cease and desist, that the cease and desist is not contractual. And that's what she's saying, or he's saying. I don't know who it was, but I'm going to read this to you, and I'm going to tell you, this is, this is where we've stuck our own foot in our own ass. Uh, and um, so, and here we are climbing out of it because uh, because we've done it. And so here's the here's the uh, thing from um, the B team, and this is what it states. It's talking about the cease and desist. The union repeatedly demonstrates that they are inclined to use cease and desist language and punitive remedies as a blanket over the entire contract. Management provides that a cease and desist is a written notice demanding that the recipient immediately stop an illegal or allegedly illegal activity. This definition simply does not fit the scope of our business. As through the course of time, we see many people come and go, new management, staff, etc., to settle with a guarantee or promise that a violation will never happen again is unrealistic, impossible and as a setup for failure. Rather, management must comply with a national agreement. So she's, where they have punked us out now, they're using it against us, right? Where we have been over and taken it so many times from management. They're using it against us. Here, I'll read that paragraph again. And and then when I read this decision from Wolitz, where I went down to Lake Charles, it's the same argument. I think it's 2016 or 2019. It's the same argument. And she blasts management for it. But here, unfortunately, we're, we're hand in hand with management about this must-comply bullshit. And I'll read it again. Management provides that a cease and desist is a written notice demanding that the recipient immediately stop an illegal or alleged illegal activity. This definition simply does not fit the scope of our business. Unfortunately for them, in Article 41, it talks about the cease and desist. And if I'm an advocate going forward, I'm going to take the arbitrator to that in my opening statement. 
And I'm going to say, unfortunately for this B team member, Article 41 talks about the cease and desist. Matter of fact, it talks about what we're going to do if management's cease and desist have become egregious. And this is how that's going to be handled. So it is contractual. So when they state does not fit the scope of our business, they are completely false. Right? That statement is completely false because it is in our collective bargaining agreement. It is in our joint contract agreement, right? As through the course of time, we see many people come and go, new management, staff, etc. To settle with a guarantee or a promise that a violation will never happen again is unrealistic. So they're telling you, there'd be the, no difference than if you come in here and you, and you tell me that I need to be regular attendance and I say, hey, look, I want to be regular attendance, but expect for, to expect me for it to be regular attendance is unrealistic. And that's exactly how I would tell the arbitrator in arbitration. I would do it just like, because that's how fucking stupid that is. I would say, promise that a violation will have, never happen again is unrealistic. I'd say, Madam Arbitrator, Mr. Arbitrator, I feel the same way about them requiring me to be regular in attendance. I feel that same way. Requiring me to be regular attendance is unrealistic. And they go on to say, impossible. I'd say that to, to, to the arbitrator. Me being regular attendance is impossible. I just cannot be. I, I'm, I won't be, you know, because things happen. And, and I'm not going to be at work regularly. And so it's unrealistic to expect me to do so. It's impossible for me to do so. That's how stupid management's argument is to say, that we can't train our people any better than to cease and desist or to stop violating the contract. We're imbeciles. We don't know any better. When they're trained, how they always put in training on us when they, they give us discipline. They were trained when they came in the door on these very things. Well, train your dumbass supervisors and managers when they first become supervisors and managers, when they're 204Bs and say, hey, look here, this is the contract. You cannot violate it. You can't do it because it's an agreement between the parties. These are the things that we're going to do. We're going to hold the union accountable, the city letter care accountable for certain things. Therefore, we're held accountable to certain things. And that's how it should be done. But to say that we're all ignorant as fuck, that's what you're saying, management. You know, management comes and goes. So everybody that comes in here, they need to be retrained on the contract or they need to be told, you know, we must comply. Well, that should be done the day they walk in the fucking door. We must comply. And so to continue to tell them you must comply is asinine. And unfortunately, the union has bought into that. That every time they violate something, we'll say the same stupid ass shit must comply. And whoever writes that is a dumb fuck from here on out. Uh, and that's how I feel. Because you're cutting the legs out from underneath the city letter carrier when you do that stupid-ass, cowardly-ass shit when you talk about must comply, will comply. You hurt the letter carrier when you do that. And I know that it's saving you some money. But instead of throwing $100,000 Christmas parties, get your fucking ass out in the field and tell your people, hey, quit with this bullshit of will comply. Quit doing that shit. But you're too busy worried about stroking the PMG's ass up there at the Christmas party. Worry about us down here on the street that are suffering like hell 
more than any time in the history of the city letter carriers besides the initial contract, we're suffering, man. We're suffering. We're understaffed, and I've said this many times. We're understaffed, we're overworked, and we're underpaid. And you continue to tell us, we're picking an arbitrator in a couple of weeks. Motherfucker, you've been saying that for three fucking months. We're picking a fucking arbitrator. Get your fucking ass out of the Christmas party and go pick a fucking arbitrator and do something for the city letter carriers, man. It's so fucking dysfunctional up there right now. It's fucking pitiful. Uh, it is as dysfunctional as anything I've ever seen. And the carriers are fucking suffering down here. And you got this dumbass sitting there talking about it's not biz good business sense to say cease and assist. It's impossible. It's not reasonable. Uh, you know, and, and, but hey, I don't blame them. We've allowed it to happen. I'll carry on. Didn't mean to do all that. That just came out, didn't it? <laughs> We're going to talk about that Christmas party, man. Anyway, and maybe it's because I didn't get an invite. Maybe if I got invited, I wouldn't. It, maybe it hurt my feelings that I get, didn't get invited to the uh, private Christmas party because the Christmas party for the NELC was not open to you. It's private. <laughs> but you know who was there? The fucking Postmaster General. That was at our Christmas party, but you couldn't go because the motherfucker was private. Y'all heard some shit like that? <laughs> God dang. Now, here's a guy that is fucking us over as far as these uh, hubs that they're making, saying that they're going to save all this money in transportation. And you know who's going to be paying out the ass in transportation? The city letter carrier is going to be paying out the ass in transportation. But some of them have added on an hour drive to these motherfuckers. And you got him sipping on our uh, punch up there, eating our hors d'oeuvres. Uh, at our fucking Christmas function, and this motherfucker's fucking your carriers over down here in the fucking streets, man. God, this would be a great place for a fucking union, man. This would be a great place for a union, brother. I'm telling you. The carriers are getting kicked in the ass right now. <laughs> and we're up there hobnobbing with the PMG, man. Here, sit down and have some of this wine. Some of this cognac. And have some of these hors d'oeuvres and all that. <laughs> oh shit. I wasn't even gonna do this. Anyway, where am I? And y'all may not care. They y'all may not, hey, it's private Christmas party, what the fuck ever, but we're hurting down here on the fucking streets, man. That shit is in disarray. And it's they're oblivious at that fucking level. I mean fucking oblivious uh, to to our plight down here. Mercy me. Anyway, and it goes, and as a setup for failure, so them abiding by the contract, them, us telling this them to cease and desist, to quit violating the contract, is a setup for failure. Now, all of these arguments were made in this Lake Charles decision I'm going to read to you. All of these same arguments were made. Rather, management must comply with the national agreement. Well, I imagine... When the party sat down and wrote this thing all those years ago, they probably understood or had the understanding that management must comply with it. What do you think? I imagine that you didn't have to tell them that this joint contract administration manual must be complied with. Uh, I don't know that it needs to be written on every fucking decision, but for some reason, somebody for the NELC has sent down a directive 
to no longer give a cease and desist because the, the Postal Service has demanded that. The Postal Service has demanded that they do that. And that's where we are. That's where we are. And now here they are, throwing it in our face. She goes on, the union must work with management in good faith to correct the root cause of contractual violations by educating those who have violated. How about that one? I'll read that again. The union must work with management in good faith to correct the root cause of contractual violations by educating those who have violated. Okay. Management at step B asserts that the inclusion of cease and desist language is nothing more than a ploy to affect future grievances rather than to resolve the issue in any current grievance. This fact is evidenced in this instant case file as the grievant union steward has counted and referenced them on all pages two, three of his contentions. Management provides that any remedy, both requested and awarded, should be reasonably related to the economic harm to the employee and must be consistent with the terms of the national agreement. This is a contract case, and the union's burden to prove a violation occurred. The union has failed to establish management has violated Articles 5, 15, 17, 19, 41 when they gave instructions. Okay, so there you have it. That's management's new position on the cease and desist. Uh, of course, it's an old one. Uh, it, it's one that, um, like I said, I, I dealt with that in Lake Charles. And, uh, and I'll read that to you here in just a second. But here's the arbitrator's decision. I'm going to read it for you. And he, he's talking about, he's addressing that language, okay? Uh, the language of the um, will comply or refrain from is how he puts it. And so it's rather lengthy, but I'm going to read it all, okay? And uh, because it, it, quite frankly, he just spells it out. He, he says it clearly. Uh, number two, and this is on page nine of his decision. And let me see if it's got a C number yet. So y'all can... Uh, it's C36376. 36376. Uh, it's from arbitrator Samarco, Elisa Samarco. And it's from uh, the award was November 27th of 2023. And Monique Mate was our advocate. And this is a great job. Monique Mate is our advocate. And um, so here's what the arbitrator states about this chicken shit language that we've allowed them to punk us into. Okay. And it's like I said, it's rather lengthy. So forgive me, but uh, I want to read all this. And then I'm going to read this Wallace decision and show you the sheer devastation of the cease and desist. And that's how I cut my teeth. And that's why it makes me so angry to see when, when I saw that we were getting away from that language. Uh, because you hurt us when you did it. You hurt the letter carrier and you hurt compliance all because of the almighty dollar. And the Postal Service wasn't going to take these things to arbitration and spend that money. And uh, the union wasn't going to take these things to arbitration to spend that money when the Postal Service told them no more cease and desist, no more escalated award. And so we are still trying to dig ourselves out of that. And uh, But here's the decision. It's on page nine. Is the abide by and refrain from language equivalent to a cease and desist order? Now, again, this is going to be long. I apologize, but uh, it's good. It's good. 
There are many prior informal A settlements which include cease and desist language. These settlements are not precedent setting and cannot be cited for the purpose of establishing that management agreed to such language as controlling future disputes. Now, I do agree, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. Because at every level of the grievance procedure, we're required to do what? Bargain it in good faith. Uh, that's what we're supposed to do. We're required to bargain in good faith, even at the informal, even at the, the lowest level. We're required to bargain in good faith, right? And so if I come into an agreement at the informal A level, we can memorialize that according to Article 15. But if I come into an agreement at the informal A level and we say cease and assist, that means management has agreed to stop and not do it anymore. If they violate that, then they have failed to bargain with us in good faith. That's how I feel. M1517, the, the compliance memo, talks about signed grievance settlement. Uh, when they say that, uh, or, you know, you must abide by those. Uh, is an informal A settlement a signed grievance settlement? Yes, it is. <laughs> and so uh, when you say that you must comply, when you have a signed grievance settlement, of course, with M1517, uh, an informal A settlement is a signed grievance settlement, right? And so I'm going to say that if you tell me that you're going to stop it and not do it anymore, and you don't do that, then you're in violation of 1517. But that's just me. But anyway, uh, she goes on. They are, however, evidence that the parties knew the significance of cease and desist language and that they did not use that language in the five-step B decision. So the informal, they were saying cease and desist. The five-step B decisions, they were not because we were chicken shit. And we got punked out. And so we changed the language. She said the step B decisions contain different language. Rather than cease and desist, the parties wrote management is instructed to abide by Article 85G and 153A of the National Agreement and refrain from working full-time carriers over their 12 and 60-hour contractual limits. We must look to the plain meaning of the language used rather than to hold the parties to always utilizing some magic language to craft their agreement. While the term cease and desist is a term of art with a well-established meaning, the creation of agreement to result in the same outcome is not barred simply by not utilizing that magic language or term of art. Contract interpretation must be applied to determine the party's intention in agreeing to said language. There are several approaches to contract interpretation. There's the objective approach with its preference for the common meaning of the word, such as such an approach promotes predictability, uniformity, and stability in contractual relationships and minimizes the need for extended factual inquiry into what the parties may or may not have intended or believed. El Cori and El Cori, the sixth edition, chapter nine, page 431. This approach is objective and takes nothing of the party's intent into consideration. Judge Learned Hand commented, A contract has, strictly speaking, nothing to do with the personnel or individual intent of the parties. A contract is an obligation attached by the mere force of law to certain acts of the parties, usually words which ordinarily accompany and represent a known intent. If, however, it were provided by 20 bishops, 
that either party, when he used the words, intended something else than the usual meaning which the law imposes upon them, he would still be held unless there were some mutual mistake or something else of the sort. The subjective approach is much less rigid. This approach defines interpretation as the ascertainment of the meaning of an agreement or a term thereof as intended by at least one party. At chapter 9, page 432, in answering the question of whose meaning prevails, the restatement of contract states as follows. Where the parties have attached different meanings to an agreement or a term thereof, it is interpreted in accordance with the meaning attached by one of them if at the time the agreement was made that party did not know or had no reason to know of a different meaning attached by the other party and the other knew or had reason to know the meaning attached by the first party. And that's, that's where management has killed us because they would have to tell, we would have to establish that we didn't know or had no reason to know of a different meaning other than shall comply or refrain from. Well, we can't say that because the parties below us at the informal said what? Cease and desist. So, so he's differentiating the two on us, right? When it says, in accordance with the meaning attached by one of them, if at the time the agreement was made, that party did not know or had no reason to know of indifferent meaning attached by the other. And so we can't say that anymore because the lower parties have said cease and desist. So when we say refrain from, we can't say, hey, it meant the same thing. It means the same thing. We said must comply with. It means the same thing. No, it doesn't. It doesn't because the parties below you understood the meaning of cease and desist. You have changed that language to must comply, refrain from. So you knew of the language prior, cease and desist. You cannot come in here now and say that you didn't know of a different meaning or a different meaning attached by, by those words. You can't say that now. And that's where we fucked ourselves. Uh, and the po where the Postal Service has made us fuck ourselves is through that. And so she's differentiating the two right there. As such, the starting point in contract interpretation is always the words themselves. Interpretation comes into play only if the terms are ambiguous and susceptible to more than one meaning. The plain meaning rule states, if the words are plain and clear, conveying a distinct idea, there is no occasion to resort to interpretation and their meaning is to be derived entirely from the nature of the language used. Chapter 9-2A, page 434. The existence of an ambiguity must be determined from the four corners of the instrument without resort to extrinsic evidence of any kind. When reading the step B language in, lighting of, in light of its plain meaning, we look to each term, and then if there is ambiguity, to the settlement in its entirety, the four corners of the contract. The term abide by is defined by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary as one to conform, abide by the rules. Here, management and union agreed that management will follow the requirements of 85G. This includes complying with terms for violations of 85G, which is to pay a 50% penalty premium to carriers who are forced beyond their 12 and 60 hour limitation. So do you see what she did there? Here, management and the union agreed that management will follow the requirements of 85G. That's what I've been talking about. Here, the union and management agreed that management will, will abide by the contract. It means nothing. 
It may, the, the language means nothing. They're already supposed to abide by it. So she's telling you, what you've agreed to, you've agreed that management will abide by that language. I told you, man, it's some cowardly shit we, we've fallen into and, and are still doing. The term refrain from is defined as to keep oneself from doing, feeling, or indulging in something, and especially from following a passing impulse. The term does not mean shall never, nor does it mean cease and desist. Cease and desist as a legal term is defined by the Oxford Dictionary as a denoting a legally enforceable order from a court or government agency directing someone to stop engaging in a particular activity. Merriam-Webster defines the term as to stop doing something immediately. The term cease and desist has a specific definition and consequence of which both parties are well aware. She got us. They did not use this term of art. They negotiated for and used refrain from, which has a less rigid use in the English language, to keep yourself from doing. It is not an absolute preclusion as the term of art. The parties chose not to use the absolute and chose to use the less rigid term. And that's where they got us. I remember when I started raising hell about this when it first started. And what did they tell me? It means the same thing. And I kept saying, if it meant the same damn thing, then go back to using cease and desist. If it means the same thing, why did we change it? And that's what they kept trying to sell me. Hey, Corey, it means the same thing. Refrain from, must comply. It means the same thing. No, you stupid fuck. It doesn't. If it did, then the Postal Service would not have told us not to use it, or they're not going to use it. If it meant the same thing, the Postal Service wouldn't have come in and told you to your face, we're no longer going to use cease and desist, if it meant the same thing. But they told us that, and we backed the fuck up, because we're a cowardly union, and we're run by cowards. We're not run by warriors. We're not run by thumpers, hellraisers. We're run by cowards that are led around, you know, with the carrot in front of the donkey, how it just leads them around. We're led around by money. They're just dangling money in front of us. That's what the Postal Service did. Hey, we're going to lead you away from your carriers. We're going to lead you away from your carriers with this money. Okay? And so fuck the carriers. We're going to lead you away with this money because what we're going to do is we're going to make you go to arbitration to get these cease and desists. And we said, no, fuck the carrier. That's what we said. They said, okay, hey, don't do that. Fuck the carrier. Let's save some money. We'll do, we'll comply, shall comply, must comply, refrain from, and then we'll try to sell it to people that it means the same damn thing. Well, here she's, she's, she's sticking it in our ass here. When one uses refrain from, one thinks of a self-imposed limitation on future conduct. Clearly, the parties do not agree to the consequence of a cease and desist when they entered into the Step B decisions. However, they did agree to at least try not to work full-time carriers beyond the 12 and 60 limitations. <laughs> the question becomes whether management failed to use any restraint in their continued violations of 85G as such to violate the terms of the settlement agreement. The union presented no evidence as to management's intent for their violations of 85G. Likewise, Management presented no evidence explaining their actions. Instead, they rest on their argument that continued 85G violations are not a basis for a new and separate remedy from the exclusive remedy set forth in the Snow decision. 
This arbitrator agrees that the issues are related, but that the exclusive remedy does not address the issues of repeated violations of a settlement agreement wherein the management agreed to try. The facts are undisputed that management did violate Article 85G after the agreement at Step B. The record is devoid of any explanation for the management's continued violations to show that they made any effort not to work full-time carriers beyond their 12 and 60 limitations. Therefore, management violated Article 515.3 and M1517. It is the union's burden to show that management violated the settlement agreement. It is stipulated that they violated 85G. Thereafter, they abided by 85G and paid the 50% penalty. Did management then refrain from working full-time carriers in excess of the 12 and 60 limitations? The evidence shows that auxiliary help was available when the carriers were worked beyond 12 and 60. There is evidence that management had noticed that the carriers were going to exceed their 12 and 60 limitations and that management did not call them back to the office. As such, based on the evidence presented, management violated the Step B settlements and thus Article 15.3a by failing to refrain from working full-time carriers beyond the 12 and 60 limitations. What is the appropriate remedy? It is well known that the USPS has had a workforce crisis since the COVID pandemic of 2020. This decision cannot be made without recognizing the problem facing the USPS on a national level. This arbitrator has addressed at least four grievances based on Article 8 violations resulting from post-2020 staffing problems. While this arbitrator is aware of the challenge facing the letter carriers working beyond their 12 and 60 limitations, she is also cognizant of management's challenges in ensuring delivery of the mail and continued operations of the service. In difficult times, this dance becomes a difficult one, balancing employee contractual and human rights against management's rights like dancers' pirouettes. This case must balance the settlement agreement and the violation and the harm against the remedy. There are two main considerations when approaching remedies in an arbitration. First, does the arbitrator have the power to award a specific remedy? Second, if the arbitrator has the power to do so, is the remedy warranted in this case? And uh, she goes on through to cite several cases, uh, but most importantly, she's going to talk about, remember I had the episode about Arbitrator Roberts Kingsport and then how that management attempted to vacate that decision and they lost that and the federal court in M1967 issued that award. And I went over it at length in an episode uh, talking about the huge win for us. Um. She addresses that. She said, however, most recently, Arbitrator Roberts, August 30th, 2019, awarded punitive damages payable both to the NELC carry agreement and to the union. The decision was appealed to the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, which upheld its decision on July 26th of 2021. United States Postal Service versus National Association of Letter Carriers. Honorable Judge Tanya Chutkin first addressed whether the USPS was shielded from punitive damages by the doctrine of sovereign immunity. And second, the issue of whether Arbitrator Roberts exceeded his authority by awarding a remedy that was not expressly defined by the collective bargaining agreement. Judge Chukin examined the authority of the arbitrator to award a remedy not specifically authorized by the national agreement. She reviewed both arbitration awards and case law. Her ruling on the authority of the arbitrator under the USPS NELC National Agreement and applying it to Arbitrator Roberts' decision 
considered the Supreme Court and D.C. Circuit opinions, which have held that arbitrators may look beyond the explicit text of the agreement in fashioning an appropriate remedy. The national agreement being silent on remedy provides the authority to so craft one that fits the circumstances. Thus, the remedy requested is within the authority of this arbitrator to consider. Uh, she goes on to talk about escalated awards. As arbitrator Robertson considered the remedy for violation of a cease and desist order, stating, in fact, the employer even mentioned in their opening statement that the union has already been issued and been awarded two cease and desist in the file and the grievance we're, we're hearing today. Simply ignoring such an order is clearly willful and malicious and clearly represents bad faith bargaining. Punitive damages are only appropriate in situations where the conduct of the party is so egregious as to be shocking and abhorrent. In looking at the facts, there does not seem to be such conduct here. An enhanced remedy, likewise, applies where there have been a clear agreement for a certain conduct and on more than one occasion. The party has not complied with either agreement or order. This, likewise, has not occurred. The request for punitive or escalated damages is denied. The Step B decisions do not include the term of art cease and assist with known and understood consequences. Rather, the parties negotiated for the language used. It means something more than complying with 85G, but something less than a cease and assist. There is no evidence presented by either side to show that conse what consequences might have been anticipated by the parties by using the refrain from language. I'm going to read all this shit again. Here's what I've been telling us for the however many fucking times on this cease and desist. We have stuck it in ourselves. And here she is killing us on this stupid ass language that our union has bought. Every decision that comes down with that chicken shit language, the person should be kicked off whatever in the fuck they're doing. I'm going to read this again. Punitive damages are only appropriate in situations where the conduct of the party is so egregious as to be shocking and abhorrent. In looking at the facts, there does not seem to be such conduct here. An enhanced remedy likewise applies where there has been a clear agreement for certain conduct, and on more than one occasion. The party has not complied with either agreement or order. This likewise has not occurred. The request for punitive or escalated damages is denied. The Step B decisions do not include the term of art cease and desist with known and understood consequences. Rather, the parties negotiated for the language used. It means something more than complying with 85G, but something less than a cease and desist. There is no evidence presented by either side to show what consequences might have been anticipated by the parties by using the refrain from language. God. Nevertheless, given the evidence presented that 85G violations are repeated both before and after the Step B settlements on April 2023, management is ordered to cease and desist from violating Articles 85G. So she had to do it. She had, the arbitrator had to do it. That's what I keep saying. Send it to arbitration. We, we've got arbitrators now that are, are looking at cease and desist differently. They're not wanting to give a cease and desist. Why? Because we have a history now of will comply, refrain from. We have gone backwards, and now we're having to dig ourselves out of this hole. Here the arbitrator said management is ordered to cease and desist. So she acknowledges that the union and the postal service have come into agreement that management didn't have to cease and desist. It's something less rigid. 
So she's not going to order an escalated remedy because of this less rigid language that we have agreed to. So we have fucked the carriers out of an escalated remedy because of our cowardice and because of we have been kicked in the ass so many times by management over this language that we refuse to include it in any of our settlements. And here is Exhibit A as to how we have fucked our carriers over. This arbitrator says you chose not to use cease and desist. You chose to come into a separate agreement on whatever the language is going to be, something that doesn't mean cease and desist, something less rigid. And since you did that, I'm not going to award these carriers this escalated monetary award. The carriers that are having to go do all this work past 12 and 60, I'm not going to give that to them because the union has come into an agreement with management stating that they're not going to cease and desist. This is what I've been saying for far too many times. This is what I've been preaching far too long about the cowardice of our union, the cowardice of our leader who crawls around on his fucking belly asking for handouts from the, the postmaster general. Uh, fucking pathetic, man. And, and, we, and here's our carriers, our brothers and sisters, getting hurt by that. The arbitrator had to say it. I'm going to issue a cease and desist. I'm going to issue that language. Because the union won't do it. I'm going to do it. And so I'm going to read this uh, Wallet's decision. And, and I'm going to show you the devastation of the cease and desist, okay? Now, this is a case that we did in Lake Charles. And uh, the award was uh, February of 2017, okay? And uh, I went down there, and management had this same argument about cease and desist. What is a cease and desist? It's unrealistic to ask for a cease and desist, uh, to say that we're going to stop doing something. Uh, you know, what is a cease and desist? That's what they kept saying. What is a cease and desist? You know, Article 8 violations are going to occur. Uh, and they've, you know, I don't know if you remember me talking about that episode where I talked about, I uh, gave the arbitrator the, analogy of the police officer pulling the guy over and he said well i slowed down you know and and uh when he ran the red light i slowed down and the police officer gets him out and starts beating him with a stick and he's man what are you doing he said well, do you want me to slow down or do you want me to stop and that's the one i hit the arbitrator with on that one and this is the case where i did that and management same argument not to cease and desist way back then in 2017 they tried to initiate this argument of cease and desist what is that you know, we're we not going to comply with that because, like they said, managers change. The contract never changes. The contract never changes. I don't give a fuck who, how many managers you have come in here and, and with that argument. Managers change. The contract never changes. It never changes. And it is always meant to be abided by. So to put in language, you must abide. It was always meant to be abided by. It was written to be abided by. So when management comes in with that stupid-ass argument, managers come and go. The contract never changes, okay? But here's the decision, and it's C32792, 32792, and it's going to show you the devastation of the cease and desist. She goes over, this is what she states. She said, the union argued in its opening statement in the instant case that clearly management does not grasp the meaning of cease and desist. If they don't know how to schedule, they should get someone who does. 
Management should be educating people. There is nothing that the union could add to the record. Precedent has been set for a lump sum to the affected carriers of $900. Now, this is we were asking for 1000 In the case before us here, the Postal Service had many hours available from the ODL carriers, but they still violated the provisions. The lump sum payment started at $25 and are now up to $900 because management continues to disregard the cease and desist orders. In its closing statement, the union said that the lump sum remedy did not start at $1,000. It was $300 in 2008 to each uh, non-ODL and over and work assignment carrier required to work overtime in violation of dozens of cease and desist orders. The remedy is agreed to by the DRT in an attempt to ensure contract compliance. A monetary award of $325 was held in abeyance for 18 carriers granted administrative leave. The payment was $400 in 2010. The payment was $500 in 2014. The payment was $900 in 2016. The union will keep demanding escalated payments if the violation doesn't stop. The Postal Service can stop these payments by abiding by the cease and desist orders. It is not the union's fault that the Postal Service continues to violate its cease and desist obligation. It is management's responsibility to schedule. The union polices the contract. The union wants only for management to cease and desist its violation of the contractual provisions. Yet here we are again. In this case, the violation is blatant. There were 170 hours left over at the end of the week. The carriers on the overtime desire list are supposed to work 12 hours. The lump sum remedy is now $900. The union will not go backwards. This violation is blatant. The arbitrator should grant the union's requested remedy in its entirety. And then it goes over the requested remedy. But there I tell you, we're not going to go backwards because the Postal Service kept saying, you know, give us a cease and desist. We're doing everything. We're trying to get vehicles. Uh, we don't have enough vehicles to equip all these people. we got a lot of carriers, but not enough vehicles. They come up with all this bullshit. And I said, look here, we're not going backwards. We will never agree to anything less than what we've already gotten. We will not do that. We are not here to go backwards. And that's what I told her when she says the uh, union will not go backwards. It goes over the requested remedy. And then she got, she has management's position, position of the postal service. Management outlined its position at formal A. Management contends that the union and management both agree that there was a violation of Article 8. And they also agree based on the union's calculations and their contentions on the amount of time worked by the non-ODL and work assignment carriers off their assignment. Both parties also agree there were no, no violations on the dates April 18th, 19th, and 20th. Clock rings reflect uh, non-ODL and work assignment carriers worked overtime off their assignment on April 16th and 21st in the amount of 36 hours. Management of Formal A reviewed all evidence and documentation prevented, and the record correctly reflects that the non-ODL and work assignment carriers did work overtime off their assigned routes Management also agreed to pay the ODL, non-ODL, and work assignment carriers for the amount of time worked by the non-ODL and work assignment carriers off their route. Management agreed to pay OTL, OTDL carriers at the overtime rate as outlined in the national agreement for the time they were available to work. Management also agreed to pay non-ODL and work assignment carriers an additional 50% at their base straight-time salary rate for the time worked off their assignments. 
Management contends that the union refused this offer because management did not agree with the additional punitive remedy requested by the union in the amount of $1,000 for each city carrier in the Lake Charles main office, which would equal $36,000. $1,000 per carrier for 36 carriers, including CCAs. Management contends that that additional remedy of $1,000 per carrier is punitive, unwarranted, and unjustified, as the union has failed to provide evidence to support the request of the punitive remedies. Additionally, the union has failed to prove that management blatantly or purposefully violated the contract or that the management's actions were egregious or deliberate. Management contends the fact that there are employees on limited duty and extended leave has an impact on management's ability to ensure that employees who do not desire to work overtime is granted. Management contends that there were no additional hours the ODDL could have worked because of the window of operation and or truck dispatch. And that's something they, they attempted to argue every time. And, of course, we shot that window of operation down. And this is what they said. This is a contract case. Even though management agrees there was a violation, the requested remedy would award punitive pay. There have been violations, but the service will show that such violations have decreased over time. There are less Step B decisions than in the past. Lake Charles management staff has made improvements in their application of Article 8. Labor relations has assisted and provided training to existing and new supervisors. And that's where I got that slow down. Because they kept trying to say in there, you know, hey, the, the, the violations have slowed down. You know, we're, we're doing better. We're training our people. The violations have slowed down. And that's the reason I used that analogy about the cop. You know, when the guy drives through the stop sign and uh, the cop pulls him over, he said, well, I slowed down, you know, and he starts beating with a stick. He said, do you want me to slow down or stop? I said, cease and desist means stop and don't do it any longer. Cease and desist does not mean slow down the violations. It means stop and don't do it any longer. And uh, if you know Wallet, she started laughing when I gave that analogy, but she blisters their ass. And here's what she states. And here's the devastation of the cease and desist. Taking full account of the history in Lake Charles of Article 8 violations, DRT cease and desist decisions, re-arbitration decisions, and arbitration decisions discussed above, and the cease and desist orders issued by DRT teams, settlement agreements, and arbitrators, we find the continued violation of the clear, clear provisions of Article 8, Section 5 by Lake Charles management, egregious, knowing, deliberate, and inexplicable. The decisions by DRT teams, pre-arbitration settlements, negotiators, and arbitrators are made to be read, studied, understood, and complied with. Yet, in the case before us, Lake Charles Management has once again acted as though those decisions had never been rendered. This is a shocking violation, not only of Article 8 and Article 15, but of management's clear responsibilities under the National Agreement in this case, Management acknowledges the clear violations, yet seems to shrug it off. Management's position seems to be that its responsibility is to get the mail delivered safely, which surely is correct, and not to pay serious attention to contractual constraints on scheduling. Management is willing to pay the make-hold penalties attached to proceeding this way, but not any penalties for repeated contractual violations, violations of cease and desist orders, and violations of the rights of the letter carriers under the national agreement. In doing so, management violates its responsibilities to live up to the bargaining 
the bargains it makes in collective bargaining and violates its obligations to the workers under the national agreement. It weakens the foundation and meaning of a collective bargaining relationship with mutual rights and responsibilities, among the most important of which is living up to its commitments and respecting its agreements, settlements, and arbitrations awards. We are not comfortable with ordering compensatory payments to workers of $1,000 each for management continued violation of the same provisions. And of all the agreements to cease and desist this violation, however, it is management has the power to prevent such an award. Management can prevent such an award simply by living up to its responsibilities under the collective bargaining agreement. All it has to do is prioritize scheduling according to the requirements of Article 8.5, regardless of any difficulty or inconvenience that might entail. That is a responsibility equal to the responsibility of getting mail delivered safely and timely. The union has few means with which to force management to adhere to its responsibilities, responsibilities to which it has repeatedly agreed. The union remedy is raising the cost of failing to comply to an amount that will be noticed so that the failure to comply with Article 8.5 and Article 15 will cease. It is an amount that management cannot responsibly shrug off. It is the only weapon that the union has to enforce its rights under the collective bargaining agreement. Amounts from $300 to $900 have failed to get management's attention and compliance. Orders to cease and desist and warnings of escalated remedies have also failed to get management's attention and compliance. The $1,000 is not meant to be punitive, but to be compensatory and to achieve a cessation of the repeated failure to comply. It is an extraordinary remedy for extraordinary circumstances, egregious, repeated violations of a clear provision and repeated cease and desist agreements and orders. Management can put an end to escalated remedies by complying with its obligations on the national agreement. For these reasons, and because of the history of noncompliance in Lake Charles, reward the remedy sought by the union as follows. And she gave us that uh, money. In this decision, and, and she talks about a previous decision. It'll be on page 12. She talks about a prior decision that she issued out of Lake Charles. And it's it's my favorite case. Uh, that I use uh, when I talk about noncompliance, that this is what she has a little snippet from it. This is what it says. In this award, we clearly explained our reasoning. We must find that the union has borne its burden of proof in this case. It is clear that this is not a new issue in Lake Charles, but that the Lake Charles installation has been violating Article 8, 5G repeatedly over a long period of time, and has been issued many Step B decisions, pre-arbitration settlements, and arbitration awards, that begin with a directive to cease and desist these violations. Yet management does not seem to take these directives seriously. While management surely has operational responsibilities to timely process and deliver the mail, it is also has operational responsibilities to abide by the clear language and national agreement and to abide by Step B pre-arbitration settlements and arbitration awards. This responsibility is not voluntary but mandatory. And assigning work full-time employees not on the overtime desired list may be required to work overtime only if all available employees on the overtime desired list have worked up to 12 hours in a day or 60 hours in a service week. Moreover, an employee on the ODL does not have the option of accepting or refusing work over eight hours on a non-scheduled day. 
work over six days in a service week, or overtime on more than four of the five scheduled days in a service week. Instead, an employee on the ODL must be required to work up to 12 hours in a day and 60 hours in a week before management may require employees not on the ODL to work overtime. This language is clear. It provides contractual rights that adhere both to ODL employees and non-ODL employees. The ODL employees have the right to work the available overtime. Just as importantly, the non-ODL employees have the right not to work overtime hours not on their own route unless all ODL employees have worked 12 hours in a day or 60 hours in a service week. This means that when management assigns overtime work, it must pay attention first and foremost to meeting this requirement. It must meet this requirement even when it would like to do otherwise for convenience, for economic savings, or for any other reason. The language removes from management the ability to do otherwise. It must meet its contractual responsibilities. It seems like management in Lake Charles has determined that when it is not convenient to meet the responsibility of this language, it may fail to do so and pay the ODL carriers for the missed work opportunities up to 12 hours in a day or 60 hours in a service week. It reasons that the non-ODL carriers who have been forced to work are getting paid for that work at the overtime rate and hence are not harmed. However, what this fails to consider is that all the carriers are harmed by management's failure to honor its contractual obligation. Even if they are paid for the overtime they were not assigned to work but should have been, the ODL carriers are additionally harmed by management failing to honor its contractual responsibilities, which erodes the trust of the carrier in their management. The not-ODL carriers who are forced to work unwanted and unanticipated overtime are harmed by losing use of that time however they had planned to use it, despite the fact that they are paid for their overtime. All the carriers in the bargaining unit, even those not directly impacted on a particular day, are harmed by the erosion of contractual rights. The collective bargaining relationship is harmed. The union is harmed by having to bear the expense of processing grievances and potential arbitration cases over and over again on the same issue. This harm is clear and evident. It is particularly evident in repeated violations over a long period of time over the same issue and repeated failure to abide by settlements and awards. We have reviewed the the issues in this case in such detail because the question of remedy is not trivial. The file is 823 pages. The arbitration cases described in detail were recent and from Lake Charles. The 54-step B decisions and pre-arbitration settlements were persuasive. The fact that the problem persists and the Postal Service excuses it away with a shrug that failures will occur and cease and desist is not always possible underscores the seriousness of this continued contractual violation. I'll read that again. And see if it sounds like that B-team decision I read to you earlier, okay? The fact that the problem persists and the Postal Service excuses it away with a shrug that failures will occur and cease and desist is not always possible underscores the seriousness of this continued contractual violation. In this case, the union has provided persuasive data to support its allegations. There has been no challenge by the Postal Service of the carriers identified as on the overtime desired list. There has been no challenge by the Postal Service of the carriers identified not on the overtime desired list, but scheduled to work overtime. And then she blistered their ass. But um, there, there's the devastation of the cease and desist. How many times did you hear it? And 
these carriers started getting a thousand dollars, and it didn't matter if it was a thirty-minute violation. The entire station got a thousand dollars because you heard what she said. All the carriers are harmed by the contractual violations, by the erosion of the trust between carrier management and the and the continued violations of the, those uh, provisions, and so. That's the devastation of the cease and desist, and that's the reason I get so angry at my union for for bending over like that because we were hammering, hammering management in every region with the cease and desist. We were getting those monetary awards, and finally they succeeded here. You know, they stopped doing it here in Lake Charles, uh, but now when they do, they still getting hit with that money, and so. Uh, that is our only weapon, as Arbitrator Wallet said, and I've said it before. The only weapon we have is the cease and desist in an escalated monetary award. We talk about noncompliance. How do we stop noncompliance? This is how you do it. I am well-versed in it. People that say I don't know what I'm talking about can show it up their ass. I've dealt with this at the worst of the worst places I've been sent in to deal with noncompliance. Uh, National sent me down here to Lake Charles. That wasn't my business agent. National called me and sent me down to Lake Charles to handle this non-compliance issues. The window of operation dispatch of value. We beat that to death, and then we started getting this money. Uh, so I'm well-versed in these things. So when you come in and you take away the cease and desist, I knew. I knew what was fixing to happen with that. Uh, anybody that had been any time in the union knew what was fixing to happen with that when you said we're going away from the cease and assist and we're going to send in this chicken shit language of refrain from, must comply, will comply, shall comply. We knew the devastation that that was going to cause to our brothers and sisters. I read that decision to you earlier where she said, hey, y'all didn't come into the agreement to cease and assist. You watered that language down, so I'm not going to give you an escalated monetary award. I told you it was coming. I told you it was fucking coming, and it's here. And uh, the chickens have come home to roost, and, and we're sitting here with our pants down, you know. But, again, those things are going to change. Those things are going to change. All right, this is taking way too long, way too long on this here. But I'm going to do this EP anyway, okay? I'm going to do this EP anyway. Let's see here. All right, on this EP, what, what had happened was – we had a CCA that had a rollaway runaway, okay? And it the vehicle rolled down this hill and hits a gas tanker, right? It's a gas tanker. Thank God it didn't blow up. And so they come out there, and they put this guy on emergency placement. And at the time of the hearing, he was still on emergency placement. And so JB did the, the formal A. And so, of course, with JB, he made every argument imaginable. And so in my closing, I'm reiterating his arguments, okay? And I'm hammering the specificity of the charge. And I talk about this all the time, the charge, the importance of the charge, that it needs to be specific so that I can defend myself against it. And that's where I always look on EPs. Does it tell me what happened with any kind of specificity? And if it doesn't, we're going to address it. Well, this is me addressing. You'll hear me talk about it at length. And I continue to talk about it so much so, you know, and towards the end, I'm still talking about it because I want it to ring true to this arbitrator about the charge, how it's not specific. And I keep saying it and keep saying it and keep saying it. And uh, I want the arbitrator to get sick of me saying it. Why? Because when he leaves, he's going to remember that. 
he's going to remember that. Uh, we talk about 41.3p. Anything JB can throw in there, he's throwing it under. You talk about arrows in a quiver. This is the perfect case for that. And so the arbitrator, you know, he grants us the the uh, award. He he gives it to us. He, he sustains the grievance. And so uh, I'll read the decision, the award. I'll play the closing, and then I'll come back and read the decision, the award again. That way you can see what he hung on to. Okay, but anyway. In the when you talk when, when you hear the my closing, uh, I start off by addressing management, saying they there was a negative inference, and uh, they're talking about I did not use the grievance, I did not use him as a witness, and that's a slippery slope. Uh, new advocates, when you don't use the grievance, because most arbitrators want to hear that they want to hear the grievance, they want to hear from them. Um, so. You have to weigh that. Uh, it is definitely not a negative inference because at no time does the grievant have to prove his innocence. Management has to prove his guilt. That is their burden. And so if management ever talks about a negative inference, uh, that's what we say. can be no negative inference. He doesn't have to testify. He doesn't have to testify against herself. It is not our obligation to prove innocence. It is management's obligation to prove guilt. I did not use this grievance because Matt, it was an EP, first off. There was not an investigation. And I was not going to give them carte blanche to have him up there and then just dress him down with a, an investigation. I was not going to expose him to that. And so I did not use him. Some arbitrators, they definitely want to hear from the grievance. Arbitrator August, you knew going in there, she wanted to hear from that grievance. He could not sit beside you when you testified either. He had to go down there and sit in the seat, if you know what I'm talking about. And so um, you just have to weigh that. you got to weigh that. But in this case, I did not use the agreement, and they talk about negative inference. So you hear me addressing, addressing negative inference. And if you listen closely, you'll hear the arbitrator tell me he didn't have to testify. When I start talking about she talks about negative inference, what do they want him to say? And he said, you hear the arbitrator, he doesn't have to testify. He understands, you know, it's not his burden. He don't have to prove innocence. They have to prove his guilt. And so you hear him talk about that, and then uh, I go on and on and on. But anyway, here's his decision based off of that. And again, this is lengthy, sorry. This case involves an issue of emergency placement, regardless of circumstance or respective argument, the burden of proof falls on management to establish reason for their actions. Well, Article 3, Management's Rights, provides the employer with the power to suspend, demote, discharge, or take other disciplinary action. The employer is limited in any decisions as restricted by other articles or sections of the agreement. And in this matter, that limitation is noted in Article 16.7. According to the agreement, no employee may be disciplined or discharged except for just cause. In my view, the just cause provision is ambiguous. However, its concept is well established in the field of labor arbitration. The employer cannot arbitrarily discipline or discharge any employee. The burden of proof is squarely on the employer to show the discipline imposed was supported with sound reasoning. Initial allegations must be proven clearly and convincingly through the preponderance of the evidence. And that same just cause language outlined in Article 16.1 carries forward to Article 16.7, the emergency placement provision, albeit less demanding. 
Nonetheless, the employer is required to show their emergency placement decision made on the facts of the case available at the time of their decision was reasonable. And in this case, my findings are based solely on the facts and circumstances available to the employer at that specific snapshot in time when the emergency placement took place. And with that in mind, each emergency placement rests on its own set of facts and circumstances, and each matter is decided on the unique evidence of specific to the individual case. In my view, the employer in this case failed in meeting the threshold of the Article 16.7 Just Cause provision discussed above. Specifically, the employer failed in providing the grievant union any specific detail regarding the emergency placement. I find the union's procedural argument in that regard well-founded. While the second paragraph of that document addresses an accident and mentions the grievance failed to follow proper safety procedures, that same document lacks specificity. Paramount in my findings is the fact that the document does specifically state this rollaway accident remains under investigation at this time. Notable is the fact the emergency placement occurred in on June 23rd, and the emergency placement document was issued on June 28th. Controlling in this matter is the fact that an enti the entire case file lacks any documentation even suggesting there was any investigation conducted or any results thereof after that 28th June date. Significant is the fact this case file makes it obvious to me that management's investigation concluded prior to the issuance of the emergency placement document, yet the employer failed to make a specific charge whereby the grievant union would be able to mount a formidable defense of any sort. Failing to follow safety procedures encompasses a broad spectrum, and I understand that emergency placement allows the employer to suspend an employee from work based on information available in that snapshot in time. However, based on this case file, the employer had more specifics available to them than that should have been included in that emergency placement document. According to the employer's own opening statement in this case, management arrived on the scene of the accident, spoke with the driver, and began their accident investigation. The police also arrived on scene and conducted their own investigation. After management and the police compl completed their investigations, Management notified him that he was being placed on emergency suspension and transported the employee back to the office where he was promptly sent home upon his arrival back at the office. The third paragraph of management's formal step A contentions concludes, The agreement was placed on emergency placement for just cause. Section, section 9 of the handbook EL 814 paragraph 4 parking reads as follows, and according to management's positions at formal step B, management notified the grievant of his placement after determining he failed to observe safety regulations, which resulted in an at-fault accident. If management had notified the grievant of his placement prior to completing an initial investigation of the accident caused, the union certainly would have argued that the issuance was premature and that the grievant has been punished for merely having an accident in con contradiction to step four's prohibiting it. The union at Formal A states, the union also contends that since management did not provide that information in a reasonable detail, that the agreement is harmed for his day in court because he does not have a reasonable opportunity to defend himself. The EP notification 
contained a reasonably detailed description of the, re of the reason for the placement. Therefore, the grievant was mostly certainly aware of why he was placed in a non-duty and non-pay status. It is premature to charge an employee with violating a specific rule or regulation when an investigation into the matter is still pending. The last sentence quoted above proves fatal to the employer's argument in that regard. There is no evidence found in this case file to indicate the matter was still pending or evidence in indicating that any further accident investigation was conducted after the issuance of that 28th June 2019 emergency placement document to the agreement. In a very similar matter labeled that and dated December 3rd, I found that, and this is a case that I, uh, an arbitrator's decision I put in there, it was one of his own. Controlling in this matter is a 1990 National Arbitrator Award authored by Arbitrator Richard Mittenthal, case number there. I would like to point out that I'm very familiar with this award regarding emergency placement. I've utilized Arbitrator Mittenthal's reasoning in many of my prior decisions regarding this very same subject matter. In pertinent part, as it applies to the instant case, that National Award provides... The fact that no advance written notice is required does not mean that management has no notice obligation whatever. The employee suspended pursuant to Section 7 has the right to grieve his suspension. He cannot effectively grieve unless he is formally made aware of the charge against him, the reason why management has invoked Section 7. He surely is entitled to such notice within a reasonable period of time following the date of his displacement. To deny him such notice is to deny him his right under the grievance procedure to mount a credible challenge against management's actions. The Joint Contract Administration Manual also reiterates similar language. The key point in all this is the fact that the grievance and or the union would be totally hindered without a formal written charge being presented, albeit in this case, the emergency placement letter. Specifically, to this case, that letter mentions only an allegation, an alleged violation of safety rules. The document lacked any detail as to what specific safety rules were violated and failed to define any acts that were allegedly committed by the agreement. This is paramount. In my considered opinion, a written statement that only included an alleged violation of safety rules and nothing more clearly fails in meeting the criteria set forth by arbitrator Mittenthal. It is simply too broad of a definition that would allow either the union or the agreement to mount any type of a defense or challenge, and in my considered opinion, the due process rights of the agreement were clearly violated in that regard. The emergency placement letter was simply too vague. It failed to clearly identify any specific charge or act that the agreement had committed. Arbitrator Mittenthal calls for the emergency placement letter to define the charge or charges. In this case, there was no specific charge made, instead simply a very vanilla-type reasoning. And that lack of detail disabled the grievance or the union's ability to formulate any defense in this matter. Even though the grievance union may have received more information at the investigative interview, the employer in this case simply failed in committing any detail to written documentation in the form of an emergency placement document. Management should have been well aware of the demands of arbitrator Mittenthal. They have been in place for some 20 years. Regardless of the discipline or its degree, the notice letter sets the benchmark for each individual case. 
the employer is required to specifically outline in detail each charge or charges which brought rise to the discipline. This provides the union with written notice as well as preventing management an opportunity to alter the charge as the case moves forward. Actually, the Joint Contract Administration Manual, Sec. 16.7, recites arbitrators' menthols, quote, verbatim, a specific written detail with reference to a specific safety rule or regulation that was allegedly violated locks the employer into a position. Otherwise, management would be able to add and subtract various charges as the matter progressed through the grievance arbitration procedure of Article 15. And that certainly wasn't the intent of the negotiators to this wage agreement. And as I have stated in so many of my prior decisions regarding disciplinary matters, that notice letter sets the benchmark for each individual case Management is required to provide specificity, and in this particular case, management should have detailed the specific safety rule or regulation the agreement allegedly violated. To merely state that a violation of a safety rule or regulation is simply too vague. A more specific detail in that regard is required to allow the agreement union an opportunity to present a formidable defense. Such a requirement allows the union to properly address a specific charge, as well as providing management an opportunity to also bolster that specific disciplinary argument forward through the various steps of the Article 15 grievance arbitration procedure. The agreement union would be at a clear disadvantage in any attempt to defend an open-ended charge. This particular instance involves a vehicle accident. According to the record in this case, the alleged accident occurred on June 23rd. That date of the emergency placement letter was June 28th. And during that time, the employer should have provided the agreement with a detailed written explanation of the charge or charges that resulted in the emergency placement. Arbitrator Mintenthal requires the agreement be formally made aware of the charge against him. The contents of the emergency placement letter in this case simply failed to meet that requisite standard. Management's fatal flaw in this matter was the fact the case file failed to even suggest that any investigation occurred on or after the date of the accident. In fact, as mentioned above, the employer advocate even acknowledged in writing in her opening statement that the investigation concluded on June 23rd, the date of the accident, and there was no evidence to the contrary found in this record. For the above reasons, there is no doubt the agreement was denied his due process rights. Accordingly, the emergency placement action is hereby vacated and the agreement shall be made whole for the period of time he was out on emergency placement. The grievance is sustained and the union's request to remedy is, is hereby granted. Okay, so there you heard it. Again, I'm, I'm one of those, I'm a stickler on the charge. I am a stickler on the charge because I have won too many arbitrations where they talk about being specific on the charge. I've done episode after episode about specificity on the charge. People send me discipline all the time. And the first thing I say is, what happened? It doesn't tell me anything. There's nothing written down as far as the charge. What happened? When it happened? Where it happened? Uh, and so uh, it's because of dealing with that so many times in arbitrations, and we have been very successful. And so I'm not going to read all that over again at the end of it. You heard what he was talking about. He hung his hat on 
specificity, the charge. Uh, he, you'll hear what he didn't address, 41.3p, which to me was a huge argument for us. He didn't address it because he didn't have to. He threw it out based on the specificity of the charge. But you'll hear me, uh, I just go after that charge. I talk about it over and over and over again and get on management pretty good and get on about 41.3p. Pretty funny when I talk about that. But uh, anyway, again, roll away, run away. Um, we get the charge. It's not specific. And uh, the negative inference are here at the beginning, okay? And so uh, I'll play this. I'm going to come back on the other side and talk about some a few other things, and then we'll let you go, okay? So here it is, the closing argument on the emergency placement. Being specific on that charge, you got to tell us something. We've got a plethora of things. <laughs> You'll hear it, okay? So here it is, closing argument on the EP. I'm going to touch on just a few things that she said. She's talking about negative inference because Mr. Morris didn't testify. What would they have him say? He didn't have to testify. He admitted he didn't set the parking brake. Am I going to ask him, did you set the parking brake? No, thank you. I mean, that was, that was all he was going to testify to. So how is that a negative inference that he didn't testify? He admitted he didn't set a parking brake. Also, I think that uh, Ms. is confused as to why we say we're going to have, there needs to be an investigation. First off, Arbitrator Menthol, National Arbitrator Menthol said that an EP is disciplined, therefore it falls under the just cause principles, right? I mean, I don't think that anybody would say that that's not the case. Uh, the investigation must happen because, or so, what happens here doesn't happen. This gentleman was off the clock for 104 days. If you do a thorough investigation, then you can say, hey, look, after we investigated all this, we've determined that he doesn't, he doesn't need to be on EP. So then his EP may last for one, two, three, four days. That's the reason it falls under just cause. It's, it's because it's discipline. Yeah, you have to act immediately, but you still have the, to do these things. Exactly what happened to Mr. Roberts is why there should be an investigation. This man was without pay for 104 days. That's absurd. Why? If you're going to remove the man, you ask for removal on 7-3, hell, remove him. Let's get this thing going. But you waited 104 days to do anything. That's the reason. It falls under just cause. So that you do an investigation to determine, should he still be out or not? Should he be back? Did we make a mistake? Did our initial review, you know, was it not determined through our investigation that he should still be out? That, that's what we're talking about. I think she's confused when she says, you know, that we're saying there should be an investigation. Well, that contradicts itself. It doesn't. He has to be put off immediately. But you still have to do an investigation to determine whether he should still be on emergency placement. That's why. Not 104 days later decide, hell, we're going to remove this man. That's why we do that. I want to go through Mr. Lee's contentions and, and briefly, hopefully. On page 19, this is the most important thing, Arbitrator Roberts, is, and, and this is his very first contention. And this is why this is his very first contention. On page 19, it says, the union contends that management did not specify what rule the grievance allegedly violated 
Union contends an emergency placement letter issued on 628 doesn't cite one single handbook, manual, or any contract provision that was violated by the grievance. Union contends management is obligated to provide a charge for the grievance so he may formally defend himself against said charge. In the emergency placement letter on page 27, if you were look to look at that, Arbitrator Roberts, on page 27, if you're to look at that EP letter, where would you go as far as a handbook or manual to defend this gentleman? Mr. Leith has every handbook available to him as a formal step A representative. He's got any handbook, manual, provision, he's got it available to him. Where would he go? Where would you go if you saw this? This action is taken based on the accident reported and the initial investigation which identified you failed to follow proper safety procedures. Where would you go for that? We've got EL 14, we've got OSHA handbooks. We've got a plethora of handbooks and manuals. Where would you go for that? That's what he's talking about. This is the charge. It's no different than the charge in court. So if you say in court, this gentleman is charged with assault. Now we've got a charge. That way management can come back later, like they did here at the formal step A, and said he's been charged with aggravated assault. Well, now you've changed my charge on me. It's different now. There's no charge on here. There's no provision of any handbook or manual that talks about a safety procedure. I asked the supervisor. <laughs> he couldn't tell you. I said, well, what'd he do? He doesn't say. That's kind of important to me. This is his charge. This took him off the clock. 104 days. It removed this man from, from making a, a livelihood for 104 days. And, and the supervisor looks at this and says, I can't tell you why. Really? Then it talks down here under 16.7. He says, I failed to observe safety rules and regulation. What rule? All the rules? <clears throat> That's important. Why? Because I've got a 1769 in the case file that says failure to set the handbrake. Right? Then I have them saying failure to curb the wheels and set the handbrake. Matter of fact, I think in management's opening statement, she states, failure to follow safety rules and regulations with agreement failed to curb the wheels and set the parking brake. Now we've changed. <coughs> Then we have a request for action that talks about an entirely different matter. We've got uh, management's contention on page 80. Well, they say now it's for a violation of section 9 of handbook EL814. <coughs> That's the first time we heard of that. On page 82, what they say now it's a, a viol an employee violated the safety policy. Now we've incorporated a safety policy that he's violated. Do you see where we're going with that? Do you see why it's necessary to put a charge on here? To put some kind of provision on here? So what they're doing doesn't happen. They say a safety rule or safety procedure, and then, as Mr. Lee stated, it doesn't evolve after that. Hell, this man's got 20 things now he's violated. What is he supposed to do? You've not told me one thing on here. 
you addressed that, matter of fact, I would trade Roberts before in one of your decisions. This is what you talk about on page nine. However controlling in this matter is a 1990 national award authored by arbitrator Richard Mittenthal. I would like to point out that I'm very familiar with this award regarding emergency placement. I've utilized arbitrator Mittenthal's reasoning in many of my prior decisions regarding this very same subject matter. And then you talk about the decision, I'm not going to read that. The Joint Contract Administration Manual also reiterates similar language. The key point in all of this is the fact that the agreement or the union would be totally hindered without a formal written charge being presented, albeit in this case, in the emergency placement letter. Specifically, this case, the letter mentions only an alleged violation of safety rules. The document lacked any detail as to what specific safety rules were violated and failed to define any acts that were allegedly committed by the agreement. This is paramount. In my considered opinion, written statement that only included an alleged violation of safety rules and nothing more clearly fails in meeting the criteria set forth by our trade menthol. It was simply too broad of a definition that would allow either the union or agreement to mount any type of defense or challenge. Then you state this on the next page, and this is what Mr. Leith was talking about. Regardless of the disciplinary degree, the notice letter sets the benchmark for each individual case. The employer is required to specifically outline in detail each charge which brought rise to the discipline. This provides the union with written notice, as well as preventing management an opportunity to alter the charge as the case moves forward, which is exactly what's happened here. Here's the rest of the sites. I'm not going to read with these, the rest of them. You have a letter which states nothing. Now as it's moved on, we have four or five different provisions that he's violated. Do you know, after the testimony by management here today, why he was put on emergency placement? Was it, was it simply for a handbrake? I think that's what they're testifying to. Was it for the wheels being curved in the handbrake? Was it for a rollaway? I mean, after his testimony, I have no clue. But they want to say it's for a rollaway. There is no such thing in any handbook or manual as a rollaway. There's no provision. I can't go to a handbook or manual and see rollaway. It's not in there. You have to tell me what he did that caused the rollaway. Where is that at? What what was part and parcel to why there was a rollaway? Then we've got something. You want to talk about the handbrake? You know what we're going to do? We're going to go investigate that. Do you tell me? I don't know why you did it. Also on this this EP letter it says this on the on the the last paragraph. The roadway accident remains under investigation at this time. Until completion of all factors in the investigation, you will remain in a non-pay status. This was June 28th that this was written. You will remain in a non-pay status until completion of all factors. And then July 3rd, he requests the removal action, which means he should have at least been paid 30 days. We've got a, a notice period. Should have at least been paid for that. But the union put in this resolution here. They didn't do anything until 9:20. This says this rollaway accident remains under investigation this time until completion of all factors of investigation. You remain in a non-pay status. 104 days later, he's still in a non-pay status. Your investigation was completed 
July 3rd. Why is he still out? If you're going to remove him, remove him. We'll deal with that. 104 days later? Also on page 19. Mr. Lee talks about is the rule a reasonable rule? He says, no reason we'll place the grievance off to his staff without pay until further notice for an alleged violation for a rule that was not specified to the grievance in the emergency placement letter. Then he goes to page 32. Here's management's problem with what they're talking about here today. Because I think at the end of it all, they said it was for failing to set his parking brake. That's what I'm going to gather from management's position, even though it's completely unclear, even after the supervisor's testimony, exactly why this man was put on emergency placement. I have an idea. But here's management's problem. It says on 5.30, this is on page 32, on 5.30, C.C. was cited on a 4584 for not curving wheels and setting the emergency brake. C.C. was given an official discussion for the matter. Right? So I know that he wasn't put on emergency placement for failing to set the handbrake. It can't be that. Because they've already shown. He was uh, cited for not curving wheels and setting the handbrake, and he was given an official discussion. So it can't be. The emergency placement can't be for failing to set a handbrake, because you already showed us what you're going to do with that. Why is it different? Why is that different? Does anybody think that somebody got involved that probably shouldn't have and made this man put him off the block? Maybe district. I think that uh, Mr. Parrish said that district feels this way about it. I think maybe that's probably what happened. It was probably taken out of his hands. I can't prove that. I'm just guessing. Because you've already shown me what you're going to do when somebody didn't have the handbrake set. You're going to give them official discussion. So if you go back out there and it happens again, it's logical that he would be told, hey, we've told you this before, so let's have an investigative interview because our next step is a letter of warning. That's, that's the progression of it all. Then they want to talk about the 1769. They always try to explain that away when you say serious accident, no. Well, because if I put yes, it's $100,000 death or loss of limb. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. Because we challenged that in our contentions, and management did not say that at all. Because to me, if Mr. Lee challenges that, 1769, which he did, it's on page 20. He challenges that. It's on page 19, I'm sorry. He challenges that. says no. Provide training instruction. He challenges that 1769. Do they say, oh, we're sorry. Um, but it's only for loss of life or limb, uh, damage of $100,000. Bull. I'm going to say there's no such thing because you've never shown me such a thing. So I'm going to go by the 1769 where it says it wasn't a serious accident. Then why is this gentleman still off the clock 104 days later? The supervisor said, I'm going to request training and instruction. Okay, we'll go with that. You know what he had when he came back under testimony? When he came back from that uh, resolution? Training and instruction. That's what he had. That's what the supervisor said. When did, what happened, when did that happen? Oh, when we resolved the removal to a seven-day, we gave him training and instruction. Well, that's what you requested back on the 1769. 
You said it wasn't a serious accident. Union says that. Was it immediate? No. It wasn't immediate. He said that at the scene, he told him he's putting him off the clock in emergency placement because of what? Because he told me he didn't set his handbrake. Which to me is as asinine a thing as I've ever heard that somebody gets put off the clock because they did not set a handbrake. Half the carriers in this country are going to be put on EP because we forget things sometimes. Does that mean that we need to be placed off our livelihood for 104 days because they forgot to put his handbrake up? That's absolutely ridiculous. I forgot to set my handbrake. Well, Corey, I'm sorry. We're going to have to come get this vehicle and take you back because uh, you didn't set that handbrake. And we'll talk to you in 104 days later. Hopefully this will teach you a lesson. My God. That's crazy. But it wasn't immediate. Said he did it at the scene, which was 11 o'clock. 1 o'clock, he's put off the clock. That's not immediate. However you look at it, it's not immediate. You got kids, got grandkids. If you tell them immediately, go in there and clean your room. If they're sitting there two or three hours later on the couch still playing a game, what are you going to say? Hey, get up there in the room. I'm going to get this belt. You know, I could then do it immediately. If I tell you to do something immediately, I'm not going to plan on you doing it three hours later. That's what Mittenthal said. Without any expiration of time. Immediately. You didn't do it. Forty-one three P on page twenty. This is one of the more important things. On forty-one three P, you're supposed to notify the president immediately, or how's it word? Not long after this. No fighting president of a job related vehicle accident promptly. You'd figure at some time, when it says promptly, at some point in time he would have been notified. He was never notified. They never notified the president, even on a Sunday. You know why? Because, like Mr. Lee testified, we need to be out there at the scene, especially on what management calls a rollaway. Because what did he say? I had problems with the brakes. I've been having problems with the brakes. Well, I'm going out there to see what was going on here. They'll talk to me. I was having a problem with the brakes. We need to get those brakes checked out. The key couldn't come out. Man says, can't take the key out when it's done this. I can do, go do that myself. So you're saying that you can't take the key out if it's in part? You can't on this one. Oh, that changes things. You're right, you can do that. You're saying the wheels weren't curved? Where was the vehicle parked when it did this? I see a map in here. We'll get to Where was the vehicle parked? When did it go off the road? Well, it looks to me like the wheels are curved because it immediately went off the road. I can prove things at the scene of an accident. I don't have to be a professional investigator to do that. I can look at a vehicle that I drive every day and I can tell you if something's not right with that vehicle. That's why 41.3p is important here. You robbed that man of this opportunity. You stole it from him. Then you're going to fire him. That's trifling. That's pathetic. The man has rights. He should have had somebody out there to defend himself contractually. He doesn't have to ask for union representation. He doesn't have to ask for that. According to Article 41.3p, it's a guarantee to him. But you didn't do it. 
Why? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't say nothing about it today. But Mr. Leith had a problem with it. Because his job is to defend this man. That's why this man pays money to us. That's why he pays dues every month. For us to defend him against stuff like this that's happening. That's why he does that. That's what he does. He couldn't do it. Why? Because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. We had a right to be out there to see that vehicle, where it sat. Ms. Shelburne said, well, couldn't you have done it days later? What in the hell would I want to go out there and look at an empty spot for three days later? What sense does that make? What am I going to do? Where was the vehicle? I think it was about right here, and I think he was over. Come on. Article 29. It applies to CCAs. They can't show me anything that says it doesn't. We raised this issue. It went all the way to arbitration without a contention against it. Satan doesn't apply. It applies. You know what management said in their contentions? We did revoke, suspend his license. That's what they said. They said they did it. Well, now it changes everything. Because National Arbitrator Snow said, what? You can't find this man work, you're going to pay him. You're going to pay the man. Did they pay him? No, 104 days later, he's still sitting out there without pay. But if you say you're going to you suspend or revoke his license, you're obligated, you're mandated. There's no way around it. It's a national arbitration decision. You can't say, well, so they won't do that. No. Once you said you revoked his license, or you suspended it, everything else is a moot point. You're going to pay him. And you can't remove them. That's in the decision, too. Then he talks about, Mr. Lee talks about this vehicle that uh, it wasn't repaired. I got an email. It's M2. And this is what they said. Now remember, at the scene, we're talking about an, of an investigation, a thorough investigation at the scene. At the scene, Mr. Lee tells him, I've been having issues with my brakes. I would think. It's just me. But I would think that part of a thorough investigation would be to see an email string with the BMF. He told me there's problems with this brake, with the brakes of the vehicle. We're going to send you a detailed report from the BMF showing where we looked at this vehicle. They come in a, it's about this long, there's a plastic cover on it, inside of it is the vehicle tag and the keys of the vehicle. And it's going to tell you every single thing that they did with this vehicle and the date. Ain't got that. This man tells him, hey, I've had problems with the brakes all day. We're going to check that out. We may have issues with that. Never done. Never done. Two months went by. This man goes to the Formal A meeting. Nothing from the BMF that they checked this bit. That, that may, that may, not keep this man sitting out for 104 days without pay, having to find a way to pay his bills. That may have done that. I'm having trouble with the vehicle. Well, check it out. You're right. You're completely right. The VMF looked at that thing. We got problems with that, that braking system. We're going to bring you back. Never happened. 
Then you got management's contentions. I'm not going to get into that much. They're just, they're so ridiculous. I understand why they didn't bring them in here to testify, but here's management's formulated contentions. They say the agreement failed to abide by some, if not all, of the safety rules and provisions and safety standards put in place. That's the reason, Mr. Arbitrator, we can't have a charge. Because now they're saying the agreement failed to abide by some, if not all, of the safety rules. So now they're saying he may have, he may have just violated all of them. That's the reason we need it set in stone on the EP letter. That's why. Because of that. Like I said, they talk about on page 18, there's substantial evidence that the employee violated the safety policy, but yet they don't include a policy. Where would, where would he go based on that? He violated a safety policy. Okay, we got about 80,000 of them. Stated here. Again, it should be, not be stated the seriousness of this accident. Well, yeah, it does need to be stated because you stated when you 1769 it wasn't a serious accident. So they're contradicting themselves. They state this on page 83. NALC Branch 4 is alleging management violated the grievance rights under the National Agreement in Handbook M39 by placing the grievance in emergency placement for an at-fault vehicle accident. We never said that. And no time in his contention does he say the words at-fault vehicle accident. I think these contentions are, are off of another grievance. Because when I read them, they make no sense to this grievance. They state here, after careful inspection by vehicle maintenance facility of the delivery vehicle, LLV, driven by the grievance on the day of the accident, it was found that gear shift would not engage in other positions other than park with the ignition off. That's not even talking about this case. This isn't an LLV, and there was no vehicle, uh, in careful inspection by the VMF included in the file. I think that this is a template, and they have forgotten to remove a lot of the stuff because some of the stuff makes no sense. At the bottom of 83, say this, NALC Branch 4 is not grieving whether the grievance committed or was at fault in the accident, nor is NALC Branch 4 grieving the actual health, whether the grievance was coherent at the time of the accident, or what physical conditions may have led to the grievance committing the accident, or whether the vehicle may have had some transmission issues at the time of the accident. Well, that's, that's their obligation under a thorough investigation. That's what they're supposed to do is to find all that stuff out and omit those things. And arbitrator Roberts, this case is as absurd as one I, as I have ever seen. You removed a guy, you, you put a guy on AP for basically failing to set a handbrake. That's absurd. Management's falling flat on their face in here today with their testimony from this supervisor. When you go back and listen to that on the tape, the supervisor Checked out of this thing about halfway through. <laughs> he, he read the EP letter, and I can tell you, it may be the first time he saw it. When I asked him about it, he's reading, he's like, no, I can't tell you anything on that right there. We ask that you sustain this grievance, Mr. Arbitrator. And grant the union this request and remedy. Again, that's on page 24. And give this man his back pay. He lost 104 days because of management's negligence here. That should never happen. It can't happen. We ask that you sustain this grievance in its entirety, sir. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat>
All right, so there you had it. There's the uh, the closing argument on the emergency placement. And uh, you heard the arbitrator's decision beforehand. Talks about being specific, and we hammered that pretty damn good. Uh, but JB does a fantastic job. It's very easy to do closing arguments with JB's contentions because, uh, like I said, I just bullet point stuff, and I'll just look at a word, and, and, and man, we get at it. So uh, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, and uh, next week I will not do an episode. It's Christmas Eve. I forgot that. It's Christmas Eve next week, so I will not do an episode. But I will do one the next week. We'll do that closing argument on the falsification of clock rings, editing of clock rings, okay? So next week's Christmas Eve, I will not do one. Uh, those of y'all who do celebrate Christmas, I hope y'all have a very Merry Christmas. Uh, I do. I love it. I love Christmas. I love everything about it. I talked about we're going to do these long-ass episodes, and here this one's an hour and 40 minutes. So anyway, uh, but had a few things pop up. But uh, have a very Merry Christmas to those of you who celebrate. Those of you who do not, man, I have you all have a happy holidays, whatever you do celebrate, if you celebrate anything at all. All right? Remember to get on Discord. A lot of great things on Discord. Uh, they're really growing over there, really growing on Discord. A lot of great stuff going on. If you go to formatearbitration.com, uh, it will prompt you to Discord. A lot of people message me, how do they get on there? Go to formatearbitration.com, it'll prompt you uh, to Discord. Also, Reddit. Get on Reddit. Those things are jumping as well. A lot of great stuff going on on Reddit. Uh, there was something put up a few days ago. It's got about 10,000 hits on it. Kind of a timeline of some bullshit with our union, man. Uh, so get on there and look at that. Good stuff on Reddit. Great stuff on Discord. Uh, also, get your shirts. Still buying shirts. Y'all doing well there. Again, all that money will go to uh, MDA. All right. Uh, sorry about this long-ass episode, man. That was way too long. Uh, hopefully, I didn't rush through it. I was trying to get to this EP, but I wanted to read that stuff about the uh, cease and desist because that pisses me off. But uh, Y'all take care of yourself. Have a fantastic holiday season. Y'all please be safe. Enjoy your families if you have one. And uh, I'll talk to you all on the other side of it. I love you all very much, very much. Uh, and it's been a pleasure doing this. If this was my last episode, just know that I've enjoyed doing it uh, immensely. Never thought that I would do this many. Never thought that I would enjoy doing it this much. Um, we've had some fun, man. I've had some fun kicking people all over the place on both sides. That's fun shit, man. And so uh, y'all take care of yourselves, okay? Y'all take care of yourselves, and um, I love you very much. And y'all have a fantastic holiday season, and I'll talk to you later. All right, bye.